0: All right, I appreciate Brother Hart playing that special for us. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning we will begin our study of this letter, and uh, we will continue this uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night uh, for, uh, well, it'll take a few months uh, to get through this letter, and I hope that you will come and participate in these Bible studies or be here for this as we... Uh, as we undertake this very important letter, Paul's letter to the uh, first letter to the Thessalonians is one of his indisputed letters, and what that means is that it doesn't matter whether you, uh, uh, if you go even into secular scholarship uh, in academia, no one will challenge that Paul actually wrote this letter probably sometime around 49 or 50 A.D., and thus that the letter is uh, most likely one of the earliest New Testament letters written, if not the very first of all uh, of New Testament literature. In other words, it's, it's, we can think of it this way. We may be looking at the very first uh, inspired uh, uh, writing of the New Testament itself. It's not Matthew or Mark or Luke or John that's first. Instead, it's 1 Thessalonians. And you and I, uh, hopefully, are somewhat more familiar now with the circumstances of the writing of the letter than we were, say, two or three weeks ago because uh, it does seem to be the case that Paul wrote this letter uh, very soon after he left Thessalonica. And so we, we know the difficulties that he faced there and we'll, we will revisit those difficulties because they play a very important role in our ability to understand uh, the context, content, and tone of this letter. And let's think about the tone of the letter for just a moment. Paul wrote his letters with different motivations. For example, he writes his letter to the Corinthians because he says that he had heard uh, from some members of what he calls the household of Chloe, whoever that may have been. He had heard from them of the strife or the disputes that had arisen within that congregation. So he was motivated to write that letter to address that congregation To end their disputes and then also we find out as we read they had posed some questions to him and so he also wanted to address or to answer the questions that they had written to him. And in true Pauline fashion, he was able to weave all that together so that it looks like a, uh, a unified whole and it's not a disjointed letter per se like you or I might write. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he did so fuming. He was, he was angry or, or frustrated with the Galatian churches. Uh, very quickly... They had begun to question the authenticity of his apostleship, and along with questioning his apostleship, they questioned the authenticity of the gospel, of the message that he had preached to them. And they had changed, uh, transferred, Paul says, to a different gospel which turns out not to be true at all. So they had forsaken the truth for untruth. And Paul wanted to, uh, he he wanted to correct them, but he also wanted to to make clear in the most extreme terms his, uh, what shall we say, frustration, his His almost anger with them for uh, their their thoughtlessness, for their willingness to embrace untruth, and all of the internal strife and dispute that that brought into their congregation from their refusal uh, to, uh, to associate with the truth exclusively. The Thessalonian letter. The first one in particular is unique of Paul's letters in that it's the only one I know of that he writes motivated by worry. He's worried, and he's worried really about two things. One, he's worried about the genuineness of the conversion of the Thessalonians. And he wants to write this letter to express to them that that he has been personally strengthened in his own mind and in his own willingness to, uh, to commit to preaching the gospel because word has made it back to him through Timothy that the Thessalonians continue to practice the faith and they continue to hold a good view of Paul despite or in spite of the fact that the city apparently remains in an uproar over their very presence. They weren't deterred by the initial hostilities or opposition that they faced when Paul preached the gospel. And even after Paul has left, there's a significant number of them who continue to practice the faith they have demonstrated their genuineness of belief. But Paul wants them to know that he has been in, in nervous suspense at learning the in, uh, this information about them. And he wanted to know the truth, but he was concerned about them for in their own sake, for their own sake, but he also was concerned about their view of him. Paul understood that one and and, and he understood well because of what happened. Paul, Paul knew that one interpretation of, of his exercise of his apostolic role and his preaching of, of the message uh, of the gospel in Thessalonica, one interpretation of him is that he was nothing more than your run-of-the-mill huckster. That Paul was was a man going around preaching either revolutionary concepts or, and we'll explore this as we go through the letter, Paul was actually engaged in illegal activity because part of the, the gospel message relates not just to the present, but to the future, and the Roman state didn't look kindly upon people outside of of Rome and especially in Rome, and I know we're not dealing in Rome itself, but the Roman state did not look kindly upon people who proclaimed either to be prophets or through the practice of divination or superstitious, who claim to be able to give people information about the future, especially information about the future, that might cast some questioning eye upon how people looked at the current emperor and his family and it's inescapable and we know this from the book of acts it's inescapable that the preaching of the gospel of jesus christ is not just a message about your present it's a message about the future jesus is coming again and G- when jesus comes again he's he's not going merely to give a good life to everybody and to make the world a better place and, and to make sure everybody has water and make sure everybody has health and everybody has food. That's not what's going to happen when he comes. Instead, when he comes, one, he is going to assert his rightful place to rule the world, which from one point of view means this. All human governments are illegitimate because the world's only rightful ruler is its creator. And all humanity is to live under Him. That's part of the message. He is going to come and establish what we know from Revelation or what we call His millennial reign. Jesus is going to rule as a king. He's not going to rule as a co-ruler with other governments. And it's not going to be that he invites people to come and be advisors or a council. There's not going to be democratic institutions Mankind is going to live under the rule of Jesus and that is part of his rightful inheritance because he is God and it is also part of his rightful inheritance because it is what God promised to David. Jesus is going to rule. Number two, when Jesus comes again, it's going to be a time of judgment. People are going to face God's judgment. And if you are not a, someone who has come to trust Jesus Christ while you live now, you will face the permanent or infinite eternal wrath of God when Jesus comes again. That's part of the message. Why do you, what's the rationale? Of the need to be saved. Why do we need God to reconcile us to himself? It's not merely because because of sin that we we are no longer at peace with God. Or that we are enemies with God. But that because we are enemies with God. At some point God intends to subject the entirety of his creation to his righteous judgment. And what that means is that human beings face the reality of God's wrath in the future. Now Paul's going to address this outright in First Thessalonians chapter 5. We as believers aren't people living in the darkness. We know to be prepared for the coming of not just Jesus, but of the day of the Lord. And the coming of the day of the Lord means the day of judgment. And at some point, if it hasn't already, humanity is going to convince itself that it no longer has to worry about such things as the day of the Lord. And they're going to proclaim peace and safety from, from such an idea, from such a reality. And it's at that point, Paul says, that the human race will have God's judgment. His day comes suddenly upon them. But we as believers know to be prepared for such a day. We don't know when it's going to come, but we live now from the point of view that really there is going to be a day of the Lord. And so we live in a constant state of readiness, or we are to live in a constant state of readiness by obeying Him. Thirdly, regarding the gospel in the future the gospel gives the promise of salvation from that eternal judgment of God through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ God has made it possible for us to be right with him for us to be at peace with him and we can live as believers with assurance and confidence that God is going to fulfill His promise in that Jesus is coming again, and when He does, we are going to be given a glorified body like unto Christ's own resurrected body, and we will spend our eternity in His presence. Now, just to remind you of this for just a moment, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is going to be a part of the theme, and then I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand why all of this is important for a second. But 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, Paul says this, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, that is, precede them, who are asleep, that is, who died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now notice this, this is the point. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now as wonderful as thinking about how quickly all of this is going to happen, maybe. The point is, in understanding the gospel, we who believe are going to be permanently in the presence of the Lord. That's the future. And that's all wrapped up in the preaching of the gospel And now if we think about Paul preaching this message and explaining this message to the Thessalonians against the backdrop of a Roman state where pursuing answers to questions about human future are viewed with suspicion. You might begin to understand a little bit about why Paul is nervous and why he would be concerned That the Thessalonians, in his absence, could have come to be convinced that he was nothing more than just your run-of-the-mill spewer of seditious, illegal ideas. In fact, Paul's accused of that, is he not, in Athens? He's He's just a spewer of concepts, a spewer of ideas. That's what they... That's that's how they disparage him. Before he is let to come in to to speak to the city council, he's just viewed as this guy out there working in the marketplace, but he's just your run-of-the-mill dispenser of ideas, like birds scatter seed from one place to another. Here's this guy just throwing scattershot concepts. But in Thessalonica, as we've already seen, The hint of illegality in what Paul preached and in what people were doing overshadowed his presence there. And there was intense, hostile opposition and they were willing to chase him down and run him out of another town 40 miles away. And in the aftermath of all of that, Paul's worried. How do you view me? And... What what's your what's your real association with the gospel? Now this is going to raise this letter is going to raise for us some important questions, and hopefully, we will benefit from this study as we uh, from time to time address these significant issues uh, and we face these challenges. For example, here's a question that's going to come up very soon. In fact, it will come up tonight. What evidence shows that a group of people has genuinely converted to the truth? What characteristics do they exhibit? Another issue that will arise out of the the deep uh, connection that Paul expresses with the Thessalonians is something like this. What does a healthy, loving relationship between an apostle and those around him and a church look like what spiritual characteristics do they show toward one another what kind of bond can develop between preacher and congregation and even though paul doesn't stay in thessalonica to be their permanent pastor or preacher it is the case that that they have this quick bond, and you can tell as we get to chapter 2 in a few weeks that Paul is deeply concerned that the Thessalonians look back on his conduct and the way he lived among them as evidence of his genuineness and his love for them. And this is important as a bond in a congregation. That there be this this, uh, evidence of, of love and concern back and forth between those who labor in the gospel, as Paul will call it at the end of the letter, and the congregation itself. Part of what goes into building that relationship is genuineness and good faith on both sides. Paul and the Thessalonians are going to demonstrate this. In fact, we could think of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, even though it's not grouped in this category of his letters, it is his most pastoral in terms of, of the deep bond and relationship that exists between the two. How does a representative of Jesus Christ, a bearer of his message, show himself to be genuine instead of a huckster of ideas. And this brings us to, to think about one of the, the ongoing realities about you know, preaching in the world, in the fallen world. Paul constantly expresses concern that preachers, uh, genuine preachers of the gospel can prove to be nothing more than fakes, Something akin to a snake oil salesman or just a peddler of ideas? How do we show ourselves in the world as, as, as people who are genuine and true rather than just you know, one, of the, one of the other uh, 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 people, type of people in the world who makes his or her living in the trafficking of concepts? This is one of the eye opening things about the modern world to me that I've I've learned in the last 10 years is if you, you pay attention to the people who become talking heads on television and who get their books published, what's interesting is, number one, how they all go to the same schools, how they all are interconnected, and often along the way, They'll, they'll easily and conveniently switch sides to whichever side their ideas seem to work with at that particular moment. In other words, your talking head, your expert on TV, is a trafficker in representing a particular viewpoint. Tomorrow, they may traffic in the opposite viewpoint. Gen- generally, that's the case. And you'll notice that there's already an inherent distrust of preachers in the world. And how is it that, that we demonstrate that we're not just you know, trafficking in concepts, scaring people out of their minds in order to earn a living? This is one of the constant social fights. As we try to carve out some sense of genuineness. And what we also know is this, don't we? Some turn out to be fakes. They are just mere traffickers in the name of Jesus for their own financial benefit. It may not be much of a living, and for some it may be quite a living. But it is true that people are willing to peddle the name of Jesus for their own well-being. How do we know when someone is representing themselves genuinely? What's the evidence of that? And Paul is going to ask the Thessalonians to reflect back on some things so that he can then remind them that he was in fact genuine with them and that they have evidence of his genuineness even if in their city and among their acquaintances they're still being bombarded with Paul was a fake, he was just pulling the wool over your eyes, it wasn't true, he's just your your run of the mill revolutionary or seditionist. Paul says no, that's never what I was and here's how you know. Now just to present those ideas for a moment. And I know it's a rather windy introduction to this letter, and it's that way by design. But just to present those ideas to you, those questions to you, it also means then that you and I are going to have to hone our skills of discernment You and I need to be thoughtful, thinking believers as we are willing to investigate the truthfulness of the gospel, as we're willing to mature and learn and grow together in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and function as a congregation of believers. It calls for something deep. It calls for something transformative. It's not just about... Touching your emotions here and there, but it's but but what the gospel calls us to is a worldview, a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of discernment and contemplation and consideration. A people in search of evidence for the truth, and I know that's often not how we think of Christianity in the modern world, but it is how Paul understood it in his own. And therefore, in the word of God, because God inspired this letter to be written, it is God's presentation of what he has done in Christ and its immediate effects upon those who believe. It is his own teaching of what it means to live as a believer in the world. And with that thought and a transformative thought, there are a couple of things from verse 1 that I want to bring out to you in our last few minutes this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1, Paul begins this way Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways in which the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is unique in the world is that it provides equality in an unequal world. And we see this concept or this this broader theme represented in Paul's willingness to group himself. He is the apostle, after all, with Silvanus and, that is, Silas and Timothy in the writing of the letter to the Thessalonians and in the expression of concern to the Thessalonians. Now, let me expand upon this for just a moment, and and you can go through and, and think of some of the openings of the letters on your own. But rarely does Paul ever emphasize his position as an apostle? If he does emphasize his position as an apostle, it is usually to to couple with that the authenticity of his message. But as Paul explains to the Corinthians, and as he will explain to the Thessalonians, Paul's default mode, if you will, is to downplay his authority as an apostle. Paul wants to be seen not as an authority figure. He wants to be seen as a genuine representative of Jesus Christ. And he is willing, even though he is the one who was chosen as an apostle of Jesus Christ, He is willing to share the limelight or the spotlight, if you will, with those around him. And so, as he writes letters to congregations, he rarely writes on his own, and he usually groups in other people who are around him or who are with him as the signatories or writers of the letter. And this fits into a kind of pattern Even the Lord's own brothers, James and Jude, didn't emphasize their place or their role as apostles or teachers. Instead, they emphasized their servitude to Christ. There's a a humility that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And there is a broader equality as well that comes with knowing Christ as Lord. Now... Paul preached the equality of the gospel. For example, and you'll know this scripture well, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, he said that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is not slave nor free, there is not male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus." And what he means, what what he has in mind, is our standing before God in righteousness. There is an equality of the gospel in righteousness that also brings us to sit on equal terms in a congregation. More about that in a moment. Now, one of the remarkable things, though, that ought to strike us about Paul. Uh, uh, including the concern of of Silas and Timothy in the addressing of the letter is that we would naturally gravitate toward emphasizing rank. We're not people who naturally want to share the spotlight. Instead, even in our our work life, and it doesn't matter what you do, generally... The the motivation or ambition of work is to stand out and separate from everyone else so that you get noticed and so that you have the opportunity to rise to the ranks above your peers. Furthermore, in our natural Adamic state, that is in our fallenness, our reality is not unity or equality, it's conflict. God told Eve this in Genesis 3.16 that she and her husband would be in conflict. A fallen humanity that is in conflict with God is also a humanity that is in conflict with itself externally and internally. Conflict is the way that we go about things. Anger, strife... Bitterness, resentment, these all feed into our conflict. Jealousy, selfish ambition, the desire to stand out. And none of these, none of those characteristics are characteristics of believers in Jesus Christ. To be spiritual isn't to have some kind of motivating feelings inside your own chest or to to feel good about yourself inside. To be spiritual is actually to live exhibiting the divine characteristics in your own life of things like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, That's true spirituality. The world seeks a different kind of spirituality. A spirituality that makes them feel something on the inside. A spirituality that appeals to their emotions. A spirituality that allows them to congratulate themselves for their achievements in life and to congratulate themselves for their economic and financial accomplishments and the places they've gone. That's the kind of spirituality that fallen man seeks But the Bible gives a spirituality of a different nature. A spirituality where there's the exhibition of God's characteristics rather than our own Adamic characteristics. And anger and strife and bitterness and jealousy, selfish ambition, along with things like adultery, fornication the use of drugs and the magic arts, those sorts of things are all the opposite of the work of the Spirit of God, but they are characteristics of fallen human beings. And when we come to be believers in Jesus Christ, we, we come to be a part of something where there can be unity and peace in the absence of conflict. Because there's the understanding that we have equality with one another before God. We have an equality of of standing in righteousness. And, And that brings us into a group where we have equality of responsibility. Where there's equality in worship. As opposed to human conflict and human pursuit of really the satisfaction of our own natures. So here's Paul actually living out part of this gospel message as he includes the concerns of Silas and Timothy along with him. Now one other point here. Namely, that embracing the truth of, Jesus, of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ transforms our place, and it also brings us, as we've been talking about, into relation with one another. And look at how Paul describes his audience. We know who's writing. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Look at to whom they're writing. They're writing to the church of the Thessalonians. Now let's take up the terminology of church for just a moment and its ramifications. And I want to present this in this way. I think I've only said this one other time and I want to state it again because we're confronted with it again. You cannot practice biblical Christianity by yourself. Now your standing before God is a private matter between you and the Lord. That is your trust of Jesus Christ. But your practice of Christianity as a believer is not a private matter. It cannot be. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Why not? Why can't I just stay home and, from the convenience of my own computer, be a Christian? Well, number one, quite clearly, the evidence of the New Testament is this, that believers not only share a common faith, they share a common baptism, and they meet together as an ecclesia, an assembly, meet together as a church. Now, a church is comprised of individuals, but it is not comprised of individuals doing their own thing, holding their own views. Instead, God has structured the church. There's supposed to be a, a, a teacher, someone leading, setting the example, teaching the word of God. And and when we come together, it's it's... We join together in singing, we join together in Bible study, but we also are to encourage each other. This is supposed to be a place where we have respite from the ills of the world. And I don't just mean where, where we come and we have a shared gripe session about how bad the world is getting. But it's supposed to be a place where our mutual faith in Christ and our mutual spiritual growth benefits one another. So that we're not at strife with each other. We're at peace with each other. There's joy and encouragement and love and forgiveness and patience here. It's not You don't get that in the world, but you get that here. That's what, it's, that's what we're supposed to be. You can't, despite what the modern world says, you can't be someone who practices long-suffering and forgiveness only with yourself. Furthermore, God never intended for human beings to be alone. Adam was by himself. You remember what God said about that? It is not good that the man should what? Be alone. And God let him realize, that is Adam realized, that he wasn't in a good state by himself. You'll notice then that from creation... God intended for human beings to live in complex relationships. The most simple of those is a marriage between a husband and a wife and then the children that enter into that structure, that family. And it is conflict in those human relationships, as I alluded to a moment ago, that God tells Eve she is now going to live with as a consequence of the fall in Genesis 3.16. What do we have in the world? The world is not a place of peace. It's not a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. It's not a place of equality. What do we have here? Well, we're supposed to be a people meeting together, not merely for worship, but bonding together and growing together in our knowledge of Christ and our exercise of his virtues or characteristics. And thus we are to encourage each other and love each other. It is here where you find a place of people living in accordance with God's character and will. Along with that, in the, wrapped up in the term ecclesia, is not just that we are people who meet together and who are physically together where we benefit from these shared characteristics, but also implied uh, in the use of the term church is that we have a shared citizenship. We have a changed citizenship. And this is one of Paul's... Uh, uh, This is one of his his concepts or his themes that he likes to emphasize. By becoming believers in Jesus Christ, we now see ourselves as people who have citizenship not here, but in heaven. And a church is an assembly, right? The term ecclesia means a meeting of citizens. We are we are people with a shared citizenship who meet together. And where the characteristics and behaviors that our citizenship defines are exercised here among each other. Yes, they should be exercised in the world, but the one place where they for sure should be present is here. So that to know Christ is to be brought into a right relationship with God, but it is also to to be brought to the ability to live in right relationship with others. Where we meet together as people with a shared citizenship in heaven, worshiping, learning, living in order to please God, demonstrating as we do the genuineness of our conversion. Now... I'm not so sure we're accustomed to hearing church explained in such a way. I don't think we necessarily consider Christianity in such a way. That over time, other ideas about what it means to be quote-unquote part of a church have influenced us, hopefully not to the degree... Where biblical ideas are foreign to us, but if so, we we can repent and we can learn the truth and we can align ourselves with the truth by studying the Word of God. But just just a quick reminder: one, we're not a humanitarian organization. We're not a political organization. We're not a social organization. We don't have a building so we can host weddings or community dinners. That's not who we are. That's not why we exist as a church. And we don't exist as a church for, you know, a few people here and a few people there to gain supremacy and to dictate that things go a certain way in the way that they see fit. Instead, we're supposed to be a people of shared citizenship, shared faith in Christ living under his authority and his headship, learning and growing together so that we can exercise his characteristics in the world and particularly benefit from them with one another until Jesus comes. And that's not always easy to do. But it is what we're supposed to do. And hopefully we can be a confident congregation by being reminded of what the characteristics of true believers and of a genuine congregation of Jesus Christ look like. Thank you very much for being here this morning. I'm going to ask you to join in standing with me. We will meet tonight at 7 p.m., and I hope you'll come and be a part of, of that Bible study as Paul really gets into the core of the letter. And don't forget, we, we're meeting on Wednesday nights still at 7 p.m., and we're studying the book of Ruth, so you're welcome to come and be part of that study as well.